0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage.
2: Hi everyone, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast, I'm Dennis Funk. Wouldn't it be amazing if your mobile or tablet gave you easy access to thousands of Third Coast stories at your fingertips? This month, we're asking for your help to make that a reality. If you donate to Third Coast before June 30th, your gift will be doubled by our generous supporters, the Manaki Foundation. Your gift will bring us two steps closer to reimagining our creaky website and put a wealth of stories in the palm of your hand. Donate at thirdcoastfestival.org and enter to win some great prizes as well. And to those of you who already donated this month, thank you so much. And please let your friends know as well. Also, if you're anywhere near Big Sur, California on June 29th, be sure to check out Big Sur Sound and Story, where we'll be curating a night of stories under the stars. The event will be hosted by former Third Coast producer Casey Mingle with special guest and Third Coast alum Delaney Hall. So join us for a listen amongst the redwood trees. You can find more details and reserve your spot at bigsirsoundandstory.org. All right, all sorted on my end.
0: Now, here's
2: this week's podcast.
0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
3: Wednesday, May 2nd, 1946. They accuse me of not trying to like people here. Gosh, but I feel a long way from home now. How I hate it here. But who cares how I feel?
0: Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be. Which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories we discover worldwide. We search high and low on the air, the internet, via podcasts. We even plumb our own families and deliver the best to your ears each week on ReSound
1: before you start shirking your responsibility for the way that you treat people and blaming it on your mother and your so-called neurosis and blaming it on your mother.
0: This week, just one story, beautifully woven from many threads. The producer, Chris Brooks, calls it a documentary novel, and we'll explain what that means later in the show. The story, Songs My Mother Taught Me, is set in Newfoundland, the easternmost province of Canada. Before 1949, Newfoundland was a British colony. When soldiers from Newfoundland came to London to fight in World War II, many met and married local women and brought their British war brides home when the war ended. This story is mostly about one such bride, producer Chris Brooks's mother, a woman of mystery, charm, and above all, secrets. After her death, she unwittingly left behind a few key items, including a diary. And from these, Chris begins to unravel her story. He discovers her thirst for life on the one hand, a deep sense of longing on the other, and lots more than he expected about himself.
1: I think you're a cruel, selfish, heartless man. You're also blind. And inconsiderate. I deserve to be treated an awful lot better than you've treated me, and you know what? So does Dorothy. And before you start shirking your responsibility for the way that you treat people and blaming it on your mother and your so-called neurosis, let me tell you the reason you have two women on a string is that flatters your disgust and blaming it on your mother and your so-called neurosis people and blaming it on your mother and your so-called neurosis. Let me tell you, the reason you have two women on a string is that flatters your disgusting ego.
4: It's always like this. Sooner or later, my mother comes into it. Why are the stars always
5: winking and blinking above? What makes a fella start thinking of falling in love? It's not the season, the reason is plain as the moon. Just Elmer's
4: Once upon a time, there was a woman who lived in London, and her name was Phyllis Elmer, but her real name was Elsie. I've set out a series of her photographs here on the table in front of me, like playing cards in a hand of poker. Is this a royal straight flush or an ordinary straight-faced bluff? There's the young flapper posed in front of a trompe-l'oeil backdrop. The 70-year-old, standing with her husband by a fireplace in St. John's, The pictures of bombed-out London, marked Passed by the Censor. She kept everything. Diaries, dance cards, the torn-up photo of a lover. She kept the pieces. The wristwatch of the Australian aviator, the man she might have married if he hadn't been shot down over the English Channel. The ration book, the pressed flower corsage, the fortune cookie.
3: My fortune, you will be a princess. You'll marry a prince and live happily ever after.
4: Well, all it really says is you will have good luck in your personal affairs.
6: I don't think it ever came across to us, I mean, as children, that Auntie Elsie was embroidering the facts. We just purely had to go by what Mum told us about it, didn't we? Poor thing was probably hampered, wasn't she, in those days, by all her circumstances. She, she, She obviously had the the intelligence and the looks and the, and the social ability. The one thing she lacked unfortunately was the background so she, I suppose she had to invent it. I wonder where she got it from, which of her parents?
7: The most frightening was the buzz bombs. They were terrifying. You could hear them coming you couldn't mistake it, it was a very clear sound. And uh, when the engine stopped, you knew- They cut out. They cut out when you don't hear them, it's when they're about to drop. Yeah. If you heard it stop, as yeah. it were, that's all, all the, what's to it? It was all right all the time you heard them going, but when they stopped, if it was anywhere near you, well, you knew you were going to get it.
4: It was just such a bomb, she said, that blew up her past. Killed both her parents, she said.
8: (laughs) How could... Why would she say that?
4: Leaving her an only child.
8: I suppose she didn't like them to know that we were her family.
4: 32 years old. Blonde, single, in London, in World War II.
8: And yet we weren't common.
4: With no family to trace her footsteps back.
8: We weren't nasty people. We weren't we are were just an ordinary little working class family.
6: We didn't know that you never knew anything about us all these
8: years. She just didn't know what to do about us. And that was it.
9: 15 minutes before midnight, and that's the wartime closing hour for Saturday night. And any American who thinks the British are a phlegmatic race should see them dancing around me here tonight. They love dancing, and these shop girls, these workers, these grocers, clerks, these people who make up the stuff of England, they dance wonderfully well. They're not all English by a long ways. The New Zealanders, Australians, and Canadian soldiers and sailors are here, and I just met a couple of Texans now in the RAF. There's a few French and Polish soldiers and there right in front of me is a grave-looking
4: Dutch officer. As long as you can hear it, as long as you can hear that sound, you're alive. It's when the sound stops. Like echo far That's when you know you may have had it. Stepped off that shore called life to cross the vast grey ocean of forgetting to that far shore. In such a place, does time exist? Do years pass?
10: I would
11: remind you that our next uh, lunch meeting is, is on the 11th of September. And I'd also remind you, too, to think very seriously about the article of of 200 words maximum to be provided for the booklet which we are having printed to mark our 50 years in Newfoundland. And uh, please think about it and don't neglect it, as I have done. (laughs) (laughs) But if no one has anything else to talk about, then... I'll sit down, and that'll be wonderful. We can sit and chat,
12: okay?
4: (laughs) If years did pass, half a century later, she might be sitting here at the New Moon Chinese restaurant in St. John's, sampling spring rolls and fortune cookies at the monthly meeting of the British Newfoundland War Brides Association.
13: It's It's 50 years since we came, because the majority of us arrived in 1946. 800 came, and possibly 400 stayed.
4: 400 stayed? Yeah. What happened to the others? They went back. So do you think of yourselves as survivors? Then? Absolutely. <laughs>
11: <laughs> K.L. Okay, is going to start to sing along. I know Audrey. Get us support. Audrey will.
7: And Audrey. Audrey's Audrey,
11: good. you said you'd like a song. Now how
7: about we have a song? What's everybody's favorite war, war one?
4: Her voice might be one of these if she'd lived to sing at this 50th anniversary.
7: Pick one out and we'll see.
4: She didn't. And so all these voices, all these lives,
7: oh, that's nice. are hers. OK. White Cliffs of Dover. <laughs> oh, same <Trying> time again. <laughs> <laughs> mean
11: get, no, I mean, Amanda
14: had a good chip, uh-huh. I a chip today, though.
12: <laughs>
14: the, the White
12: Cliffs of Dover Tomorrow,
14: just you wait
12: and see. I think that they should have gone back to marry their own. And we should have married our own. Too late. The war is responsible for a lot of unhappiness, isn't it? Really.
14: I mean, not everyone is as satisfied and happy as I have been. But I'm not alone, I know that. I mean, some people think love's a joke. But it's not. It's there's just nothing you can do about it. Sorry, but you can't. <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. I can't think of anything they could have better than a Newfoundlander and a Brit. Mixed up, you know.
1: You're going to be weird because of her, or because of the documentary, or because of her again, or because of a new documentary, and I accept that and I wait. Well, I'm sick of waiting.
4: Excuse me, I'm looking for number 25, Gwendor Road.
13: Uh, Oh, Gwenda. It's uh, Gwenda. Yes, oh, Gwendoor, wait a minute.
4: What I'm looking for, this was the address of a woman I'm, I'm researching, a woman who lived here in the 40s at number 25 Gwendoor Road. Yes. It's, it's, see, it's as if it should be there, you yes, see. Yes,
10: well, those were all bombed. I mean, they, those have been like that for 50 years. That That is not a natural green
13: place.
12: It's grown up since the bombing, and we had, whatchamacallit, housing on it.
4: Oh, because um, she lived there... In, I think, the late 1930s, early 1940s, past 1940, 41. Phyllis Elmer.
13: Yes, I I don't know the name. I've lived here for 30 years, but I know quite a lot of people round about. February 14th,
15: 1939. Dear Miss Elmer, further to our recent interview, at the moment I see no great scope for you on the exhibition promotion side of our business, But I am prepared to start you at £5 per week on the stand-fitting side with promise of an increase immediately you make good on it. If you accept, the sooner you can commence work with us, the better. Yours faithfully, Ewart Watson Exhibitions Limited, 19 Charing Cross Road.
10: I mean, she would have had to have started work at about the age of 14. I mean, very few girls stayed on at school beyond the age of 14. And since the majority of families were hard up, I mean, she had to get out to work and get a job very quickly. And... The actual material expectations of, of a young, intelligent working-class woman in the 1930s were,
12: were, were very limited. You, are, you went into domestic work or you became a cook, or, or if you were in the lower classes. You didn't become a secretary or anything like that. Or you worked in a, a shop, a shop assistant. But you, you never went for anything better. That was your place. You looked. Oh, you worked for the people in the next you, rung up the ladder. There wasn't much for the lower class to do apart from serving. Excuse me.
4: Hello. I wonder if you can help me. I'm researching the life of a woman who lived on Nevern Place in the 1930s and 1940s. And her I dress?
16: have no idea at all, I am only curious. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> it's okay.
8: Thank you very much. Oh, she was wonderful. My sister. She was about nineteen when she left home. I was only a very young child then. But my dad I think he adored her. He always thought of Elcism. But he felt he didn't fit in, you see. She had these friends that were so they were definitely they were above us she she was she had a good life, she made herself a good life and met nice people and we were just we were just ordinary working class people
4: was that why she left home do you think to to better herself
8: Oh yes, definitely she wanted to be something better than that to be staying at home and getting married to someone you know some local boy. oh no, she didn't want that. I don't know where she got it from. I don't know. honestly. It must have been the family somewhere.
4: 29th May 1939. Dear Mr. Bannerman, may we introduce Miss Elmer, who is seeking a post as newspaper representative. She recently came before the notice of our clients, Mrs.
9: Moss Brothers, who were greatly impressed by her capabilities as a saleswoman. Yours faithfully, Arthur J. Owen Limited, Advertising Service Agents, 133 High
5: Holborn.
8: You see, she got this good job. She was secretary to Mister Cook. and um, and he, you see, he he must have fallen for her. I think he was too fond of her. You see. Do you think she was his mistress? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. She didn't want to be. He had a wife. He was married. I suspect that's why she left him, because she didn't want to be that. She wasn't like that. But I think
10: he was enamoured with her. It's very hard to escape the realities of class in Britain today. But in the 1930s, they were the divide was sort of almost unpassable. I mean, the British property classes had affairs with domestic servants or factory girls. They didn't marry them. And whatever the truth was about class divisions in the new world, I mean, what people imagined was that, that you could escape those class divisions by travelling somewhere else and becoming part of a new world.
13: Take
14: what you do. the way do it. what you do. the way how you do it. Take what you do. the way how you do it. That's what Mama,
9: mama. We are interrupting our programs to bring you a news The following official communique has been issued from 10 Downing Street at 9 a.m. this morning. His Majesty's Ambassador in Berlin informed the German government that unless, not later than 11 a.m. British Summer Time today, September the third satisfactory assurances had been given by the German government, a state of war would exist between the two countries as from that hour. His Majesty's government are now awaiting the receipt of any reply that may be made by the German government. The Prime Minister will broadcast to the nation at 11.15. That is the end of the announcement. Please stand by for a few moments.
3: Sunday, September 3rd, 1939. War declared 11.15. Air raid 11
11: 30. I felt someone pulling me out of bed and I heard the sirens. That was Mother. Quick, she said, There's an air raid, you know. The war is just being declared. She said, and There's planes overhead. So we got out, and we all went out in the garden and looked, and watched, you know. We didn't go into any shelters or anything.
9: Look, look, look,
14: look, at those! Oh,
5: yes, yeah, boys! Oh, so look, look at them all right behind there. Millions of them. Look, they're the, the bombers, children. Oh, shot, yes, right. there's another one. I think they're bombers, too. Look at that!
14: Time. Yes, they are. They're
9: German bombers. But look at that!
3: There's another look one on behind that cloud. Them, behind the cloud, look. Look, 486. Oh, Bomber crashed, 12.30. <laughs> I crashed, 1 o'clock. There you go. Injured face and right leg, taken to Hampstead Hospital, confined to bed.
16: Well, I was very excited when the war started. Yes, it was I remember a, my mother agreed. crying yeah. and my father swearing, and I remember thinking, "What's wrong with them being upset like that? It was going to be exciting.
11: exciting." This went on, you know. I mean, we every night, you know, we used to have raids. You know what it it's like. But Mum and I used to sleep underneath the table in the dining room
14: because you felt safe underneath something, you know. And all I could hear was the ak ack guns going off, big, big guns we had, <laughs> you know. I, I, I said, I can't do this. I cannot be enclosed and can't see what's going on here. I'll go mad. And so I joined as an air raid warden.
11: I was in the Civil Defence, the ARP... Yeah, I mean, the civil defence was big in London. But we, I mean, we, we worked hard because you had long shifts and... But a lot of burned people that were
12: burned because
11: they dropped the phosphorus bombs.
12: I went in the army because I felt that I wanted to fight for the country. We were with the uh, heavy AKAK 3.7s and 4.6 guns. I was a sergeant in charge of about 100 girls. We used to plot the planes coming in.
16: Well, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't normal living by any means. We, uh, I suppose we really ran on adrenaline.
12: Yeah, it was a funny kind of life to lead, well away from your parents. and um, Well, you just didn't know whether you would be here the next week.
3: Saturday, September 16th. Allowed to go home from hospital, but limping with much pain. Quite alone.
9: London Pride has been handed down to us. London Pride is a flower that's free. London Pride means our own dear town to us. And our pride it forever will be. Are we here? Well, it's number 27.
1: Want to come up for a
2: cigarette and a drink?
3: Oh, really? You must be awfully tired.
2: No, I'm not. Come see my room. I've only had a place of my own for a week. It's a new toy. Saturday,
3: September 23rd. Petrol rations started. Had dinner with Don after pictures.
10: Saw the spy in black.
9: Well, this is jolly. Sit down, I'll get your drink.
10: Thanks. The imaginative possibilities of growing up as a young woman, working-class woman in the 1930s, were huge.
9: They when. Oh, when, when?
10: They were reading about romance, they were going to the movies and imagining lives very, very different from their mothers. If you think of the, um, I don't know, Jean Harlow or Malena Dietrich, the heroines of the 30s, they weren't exactly domestic women and they weren't domestic romances
6: Would you be shocked if I put on something more comfortable?
10: I'll try to survive And the other very important thing was that this was the generation that was growing up with contraceptives which were cheap and available and you could imagine a life as a woman without a child every year that was the absolutely crucial thing I think
1: I want to be free I want to be gay and have fun Life's short, and I wanna live while I'm alive.
9: That's the way I feel too. Hey lady, when the day is dawning, see the policeman yawning on his lonely beat. I Think I'd better go. Hey lady, may I really should hear your footsteps echo in the empty street.
3: Tuesday, Bill. Wednesday, Maurice. Thursday, Ernest. Friday, dawn, awful evening. Saturday, lunch with FH. Sunday, lunch with Edgar, concert with Bill, dinner with F.H. Proposal of marriage from F.H.
9: Every blitz your resistance toughening From the ritz to the anchor and crown Nothing ever could override The pride of London town
3: Wednesday, september twenty fifth, nineteen forty, my birthday. Flowers arrived from Basil, lunch with Herbert at Scott's, missed Ernest at four thirty, house evacuated, stayed in hotel Queen, dinner with champagne, slept on settee there, many bombs, nearby windows broken.
13: Have you seen that one before?
4: No. No.
13: Now, I think that's just before your dad uh, went off to war. So that's. uh, Uh, That's Toby, uh,
14: the Newfoundland dog. dog,
13: And I remember standing very proudly on the front steps while uh, dad took the picture. Is that you then? Yes. But it's all so long ago, Christopher. I mean, We're talking 50, 55 years ago when he went away. And 50 years ago when he came back. So it's... um, The snap... The memories are snapshots. They're not a moving picture.
4: Well, give me another snapshot.
13: Um... I I remember... um, I remember the day he went off to war because I remember the men marching down Long's Hill. I guess I was five and I remember standing on the sidewalk watching Lewis and I had a red red coat with a, a piece of red and white ribbon And he's somewhere in the front line of a rank of eight or ten across. And he had a a herringbone tweed coat with a belt. And he looked really quite smashing. but I don't think when my brother went off to war that I really had any sense of the danger just the feeling of of loss and as I say the anxiety that it caused within the family and it seemed to me to be such a huge crowd
4: Young young
13: Newfoundlanders yes marching away together
0: You're listening to Songs My Mother Taught Me from producer Chris Brooks on Resound. We'll get back to the second half of the story in a moment, but first an invitation to visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org, where more than 1,500 stories are just waiting for you to enjoy. You can find hours and hours of great listening, news about our upcoming events, and behind-the-scenes interviews. Coming up after the break, we'll continue with the second half of today's story, Songs My Mother Taught Me. By Chris Brooks.
5: Uh, novels
16: 1200. Answer.
9: I'll
15: bet it all.
5: Oh, all right.
9: Double, double
15: rainbow all the way. But it's results that count. The plain fact is that Spurs and nobody else's century have achieved the double. Shot knots, double dutch. Deflected to second.
1: What a double play! It's
9: I
13: am very pleased that
8: we have won the double
4: this year. Let's play Double dare. Double dare. Double Day! A double pleasure's waiting for you! Oh my god! Oh my god! Double rainbow all the way across the sky! Oh my god!
0: If you give any amount to Third Coast before June 30th, your donation will double. Thanks to a generous match this month from the Minaki Foundation. You can make a gift at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, and enter to win great prizes. Thank you. Thank you. I had to double that.
9: Ryan Reynolds here
2: from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
0: You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. We're just about to return to today's feature, Songs My Mother Taught Me, a documentary novel from producer Chris Brooks. In the first half, we heard about British women who married World War II soldiers from Newfoundland and then came to Canada to set up house. Chris Brooks' mother was one of those women. His search for information led him to discover that she lied about her background, enjoyed the attention of many men, and married his father unhappily. Here's the second half of Songs My Mother Taught Me.
3: I know you don't want to talk
1: about this because you don't really want to admit to yourself truthfully how much pain you are responsible for. You've made me feel like a stuffed toy to be put on the shelf every time you and she feel the need to do another emotional tango. If you don't want to hear me talk about this, then don't call me.
3: Tuesday, October first, nineteen forty. Mary called at four forty and took me to a picture, Gone with the Wind. Dinner and eleven o'clock on to Paradise Club with Veronica and Willie. Home together for late meal. We lay on top of bed, fully clothed, until the telephone rang. I feel terribly in love with Murray. Wednesday, 7 o'clock, Captain Basil Smythe, Dinner Dance. Heard Nightingale at 2am
8: in Berkeley Square. Marvellous evening. She just had that way with her dear, like some girls do. And some girls are attractive to men, and no doubt about it. She's very attractive, your mother. Thursday met
3: French officer. Dinner should have been at French club, but this place bombed. Very serious air raids all night. Fires burning. Renee stayed.
14: Left at five thirty in the morning. Oh yes, it was a romantic time. You see, you were young. And um well. David on leave. Walked in park.
3: Lunch at Silver Grill. Supper dance at Romero's, home at half three in the morning.
16: It was all great excitement, meeting people that we would never have known. People from New Zealand and Canada and Newfoundland and Australia, all the dancers that you went to, you met all these kind of people.
7: The whole world was sort of stirred up like a great big stew, and everybody was somewhere different and not, you know, doing things that they never expected to do
16: and there were 10 guys to one girl. I mean, if somebody said to me, you can live at any period that you like, I would have lived, been that age and gone through exactly
11: what, what, what I did then. You lived your life in case you weren't there the next day. Why worry about tomorrow? Might not be here?
9: BBC Home Service. Good morning, everybody. Here is the first news bulletin for today, and this is Alan Howland reading it. German air attacks on this country last night were widespread but not heavy. Saturday, October
3: 5th, up at half nine. David is still asleep. Did shopping and tea at home.
4: 61642, can I help you? Yes, I hope so. I'm calling from Canada. And I'm researching the Second World War. Okay. At half six, went to
3: overseas club with Davity.
4: And I have the wristwatch of an Australian flyer who was shot right. down over the English Channel during the war. OK.
3: Bombs dropped very close by as we tried to leave.
4: And there's a number and three letters engraved on the back. Right. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what they might mean.
3: Waited for quiet period and went home with D e after club people had been worrying us to go to the shelter.
4: Fine. What three letters are they? A-T-P.
15: ATP. Do you know the name of this part, this this
4: fighter at all? This yes, his name was David Fletcher. So it's not his not his initials. No. David,
3: he leaves at twelve Monday from St Pancras Station, or what is left of it.
4: Okay. Um. Look, you'd have to leave it with me. I'd have to do some looking for you. I'll have to. I've got a book here on um, on military abbreviations. If so you'd like to give me a ring, probably about four o'clock this afternoon.
3: Sunday, November twenty-third. David phoned and was so very sweet. Nearly proposed.
2: What, what are the letters next?
15: ATP.
2: ATP. Um, yes, that's something timepieces. Hold on a moment, let me just check this for
8: you. won't keep you a mum. <laughs>
5: This
15: is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Hello, sorry to have capture. It's
5: right. uh, yes, it's Army timepiece,
12: although the fact that a flyer had it obviously doesn't make any difference in the sense that it's a military
8: issue watch. So that means Army timepiece, the, the War Department mark.
4: Thank you very much.
8: OK, good. Glad to have helped. Thank you. Bye-bye.
9: The enemy aircraft have been reported over towns on the south coast, the west of England the North Midlands and the North West as well as over the London area.
3: Monday, December 22nd, 1941. Up at 7.30 for breakfast. Nine o'clock, heard radio news. Aircraft of the Coastal Command last night
15: attacked objectives at St. Nazar. One of these aircraft is missing.
3: One o'clock, received wire. Post Office Telegram, Priority 43, December 22nd, 1941. Miss P. Elmer, 27 Linton Court,
15: Holland Park Avenue, London West 11. Regret inform you that Flight Lieutenant David James Fletcher is missing and is believed to have lost his life as a result of air operations on the 21st December. Officer Commanding 201 Squadron.
3: Tuesday, January 6th, 1942. They've given me David's wristwatch. Still on his arm when they pulled him out of the channel. Stopped dead at a quarter to four. Like him. ATP 55263, it says on the case. Swiss made. Stainless steel back. Heavy little thing. I've had it repaired. Life goes on.
16: Quite a number of boys I knew well and danced with and very fond of were killed. And, you know, you'd go home and you'd have a little And My mother said, well, there's no good crying about it. Stiff up a lip
7: and everything. It's done. Today, when they say, oh, people have had these dreadful experiences and they have counselling, I think, well, why didn't
3: we? And why weren't we all mad? Well, I bet we were. February 5th. Tiny came and took me to the Clarendon for a lovely meal with Burgundy. Home by half ten and then to bed. He's really grand. Three mm It's a bit of a nasty thing to say, I suppose, but all those uniformed men, I mean, who the devil were they all? She seemed to have a thing about uniform, didn't she? Lieutenant Paul Irwin called to take me to show Doctor's Dilemma, Dinner at Casa Pepe, and walked all the way home. At 1.15, Murray phoned, and came by, talked, and then
8: bed. When mm, mm. <laughs> she did have a whale of a time. Before your mother got married at all.
3: Saturday, June fourth, nineteen forty-two. We all went out for dinner on Slough Road. Got rid of John with great difficulty. He came back and disconnected the doorbell. But Tiny returned with key, as arranged and without incident. Two mm Grand. Monday, July 13th, 5.30, met Captain Lewis Brooks at the Cumberland. Talked in bar and later in the lounge. Very serious. Then home by taxi left at the door kissed me on cheek <laughs> he is very sweet and seems to like me I hope so
11: he was a bombardier I think when I met him <gasps> beautiful curly hair bit foxy beautiful curly hair and tall nice looking man you know
7: he was very quiet, he's still very quiet, and had a moustache, and it didn't suit him at all. And somebody said to me, well, what do you think about him? I said, well, I suppose he wouldn't be
14: too bad without that dead mouse under his nose. He came from behind me and asked me to dance. And he had Newfoundland flashes up on his shoulder. The rest of the, of the uh, station were all Canada flashes on the shoulder, but this man had Newfoundland on. He said, well, it's a, I come from a country. <laughs>
4: it's a, Newfoundland. Hello. I'm researching the life of a woman who used to live here. Are you? Yes, about 50-some-odd years ago. And I hoped you might be able to help me.
14: Yeah,
5: come
4: on in. Right, thank you. Number 27, right? Number 27. Wait, does ring here at the moment. Well, I think, I think she was too, <laughs> but I, I'm not really sure. Yeah? Who's that? Well, her name is Phyllis Elmer. Monday, August
3: 24th. Went to pictures with Lou. Met many Newfoundlanders for drinks after. On to the Cumberland for dinner dance.
5: Well, there is a lift. Well, you can just go up the stairs.
3: No? Home by 11.30 and danced to the radio. Then bed by 2am.
4: He stayed. Very happy. Hello.
2: Chris, Chris is investigating the life of
4: A, a woman who lived here us. about 50 some odd years ago. Oh, August
3: 28th, 1942. But, um, Lewis came to take me by train to a swimming pool.
4: It would help me to know if there is a balcony such that somebody could be on the side or, or somewhere down below and throw stones up to the balcony to get let in. <laughs>
2: sure, come
3: Dinner at home. There is. Tiny came by. Oh, then John and Chuck dropped in and had coffee with us.
4: Yeah, because the squirrels
3: ran across here. Oh, and so don't. someone could. John and Chuck soon left. Then Tiny and Lou left around half 11.
4: So this opens.
3: Lewis returned, and I dropped key from window. When... mm -mm, Lovely.
4: Well, actually, this is quite... So if you... uh, You could actually come and go through here if you wanted to be surreptitious, couldn't you? Well, Well,
8: it it would be possible, I guess. If you look from the outside... Sunday, August 30th,
3: 1942. Bed by half ten. Lewis came by balcony.
4: Well, that would make a perfect way to get up, wouldn't it?
2: What did she go on today that, that interests
4: you? Was it later in her life? That it, it yeah. Continued? She married a, a Newfoundlander, a soldier. Mm-hmm. Monday,
3: July 13th. 5.30, met Captain Lewis at the Cumberland. Proposed marriage in taxi to Café Royale. Talked for a long while, and he confirmed his love for me. Did not leave until the early hours. Very disturbed, but happy night. Newfoundland sailor. Part two in this radio series by Dr. Thomas Wood. Introducing Commonwealth troops
7: stationed here aiding with the war effort. And here is Dr. Thomas Wood.
9: On my right is Captain Lewis Brooks of the Newfoundland Liaison Staff. On my left is Corporate Tony Conrad, now of the Canadian Army. What do you say, Captain? If I asked you what's the song above all others that would bring me from land right into this
15: very room. Well, Doc, I guess it's the uh, Ryan's and the Pitman. What do you think, Tony? Is that the one uh, will rant and will roll, Captain? Sure, that's it. Oh, boy, let her go, Captain. She's a dandy. Well, sure rant and roll all together.
10: we rant
7: and I I remember telling some of the wafts, that the new Fernando was coming to meet me. New Fernando, but well, what's he like? I said, "What? What do you think he's like? He's ordinary? What, how does he speak? I said, well, like we speak. He, he speaks English." Well, they couldn't believe that. So I told him where we would meet outside the front of Thames House, which was M A P then. And the entire unit walked out the front door and in the back so that they could see Alistair and see what a new looked like. <laughs>
6: You know how English people mix, like we mix Australians and New Zealanders. We we used to. perhaps we don't so much now, but we used to, didn't we? And you mix Americans and Canadians. Sorry, (laughs) Newfoundland. And not forgetting that English people had only ever seen pictures of America on Hollywood screens and things, and you you hear the accent, which we wouldn't have been able to differentiate. We would think of you as American... In your mind, it's all associated with riches, isn't
16: it, and 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 good living. When Bob told me, well, I live in Newfoundland, you know where Newfoundland is? I expected it to be like the cowboy movies with kind of uh, fences outside of pubs that had swinging doors <laughs> that you tied horses up to.
15: <laughs> that
16: was as much as I knew.
15: What kind of song did you sing? Well, uh, the... The squid jigging
3: grounds is one. All about the squid. That's swell. Shoot. Four o'clock met Herbert Masterson at the Grosvenor for tea dance. Met Lewis on the way. He was upset. Herbert proposed at the bus stop. Arranged to see Ring tomorrow.
6: We always got the impression she must have turned down hundreds. You know, Barbara Cartland, that kind of thing. Hundreds of suitors and. Well, perhaps she did. I mean. I mean, obviously the men's found her very attractive, but maybe she couldn't get them quite as far as the altar if they realised that her background wasn't the same as theirs. Of the families would, would have... I mean, supposing she'd met up with the, I don't know, Earl of Strathmore or something or other, um, that would be fine, him taking her back to the castle, wouldn't it? The Baronial Hall. But if he wanted to go back to her place... It would be the laundry at Caxton Road.
4: <laughs> so you've by, by, by then marrying out of the country? The, wouldn't she
6: know, would, know, would they? they? She could fool the friends over there, couldn't she? She was a stranger to them. They would really think that she was a lady of Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. But we'd all know her over here she was no first lady, so she wouldn't be able to keep it out, would she?
3: Sunday, November 8th. Engagement with Herbert broken off. Terrible quarrel said dreadful things. Feel relieved that it is all over and I am free. Stayed home alone all day. Then phoned Lewis. That's
13: what
8: I can remember of my my sister. Have you seen a wedding invitation? Oh, I say. I don't know if we got one of these. If we did, my sister's got it. Read it. Um, the, pleasure the, pleasure. Pleasure. the
10: pleasure
3: of your company is requested at the marriage of Phyllis, yes. daughter of the late Mr. Um, and Mrs. P.A. Elmer and Captain Lewis R. Brooks.
8: No, he wasn't. You see, that was what hurt him so. I remember now, because he wasn't the late... He was alive. You see what she would do. That's very sad. I remember this now and how hurt he was about it. Why did he say, She say why did she say I was you know? But what could he say about it? And that's why we didn't go to reception, I know now. I remember now. Because he didn't want to I mean, how could she introduce him as her father? And yet my dad was a good old dad.
4: Why would she do that?
8: Because she didn't want them to know her family.
1: This whole situation is sick. So take some responsibility. Say it to yourself a few times. I am making another human being miserable. I don't know if my saying this is going to make any difference at all. You're in denial anyway, and I've had it. You need to see a therapist.
5: So, I guess the moral of the story is you got recruited in that family into the marriage instead of being able to be a kid in that family let me think about that
4: for a minute. Why wouldn't you leave? Well, where would I go? I, were, I didn't have any other family. I mean, my mother always said that her family was dead, which wasn't true, I learned in later life, but, I, I mean, as a child I didn't know. My father's family, um, she was estranged from them. They, something had happened when I was a little kid, when she'd first um, stepped off the boat here. I, I don't really know what it was. So I couldn't go to aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. Where would I go if I did run away? Interesting.
5: So leaving was not a... Ending relationships was not an option you had much experience with.
13: It was either Harvey & Company's Wharf or very near there. I guess I was about ten, yes. Mm. I remember jumping up and down with excitement and seeing the ship come in.
14: And we could hear the band playing Here Comes the Brides. Bride. Uh, that was funny because some of us had been married for years. <laughs> I was married a year and a half and then there were people there with babies. <laughs> so here come the brides.
13: And your mother wore a hat. I remember her coming off the ship in high heels and a hat and I thought this was probably the most glamorous thing I'd ever seen.
14: She looked down on the wharf and everybody had gone and been greeted and there was just this one man standing there and she looked and she said, Oh my God, I mean, is this... <laughs> I'm going home kind of thing, you know, <laughs> because it looks so different in civilian clothing.
13: Fancy coming off a ship in in high heels and a hat. It wasn't like the girl down the street.
7: We couldn't have been the sort of people they expected their sons and brothers to marry and bring home, because we had been made so different with the war that we weren't, what shall I say, charming daughters-in-law.
13: We always had the feeling that your mother was very disappointed in the type of family that she came out to, that we didn't quite live up to what perhaps she had either... Hoped was landed gentry, or had been led to believe was landed gentry. Although I, I, I don't know, but we always felt there was that sense of not quite being what she was either used to or or expected us to be.
12: They didn't really understand, I don't think, what it was, what we expected.
4: Is it because they hadn't been through the war? I think that was a lot of it.
12: No, they didn't fear for their life every night. But, it, no, all the dreams that we had that we were going to make a new life and it was going to be splendid, they all went. No, Newfoundland wasn't for me. It wasn't that dream. I think the first fortnight, I knew it couldn't be.
3: Monday, April 1st, 1946 Very cold and snow, stayed in all day Tuesday, April 2nd, stayed in all day Very cold and slushy, snow everywhere Wednesday, April 3rd, stayed in all day Thursday, April 4th, stayed in all day Friday, April 5th Rain, hail... Ice, snow and slush everywhere. Stayed in all day. Wednesday, May 2nd, 1946. They accuse me of not trying to like people here. Gosh, but I feel a long way from home now. How I hate it here. But who cares how I feel? Having to live under such awful conditions and the weather so terribly bleak, what can they expect?
16: This homesickness, I think, was also a part of grieving. And I think it was kind of a a post-traumatic experience that we were having that nobody knew about or nobody realised. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was the quite as bad as we thought and how we blamed Newfoundland and we blamed people and that for it. I think we were going through what they now call a post-traumatic syndrome of the war and leaving home and that kind of thing. I really do. But because we didn't... It wasn't recognised then, was it? Nothing like that was recognised.
12: And, you know, there were always family arguments. And nobody really understood how you felt. They didn't understand why... I wanted to go home. They didn't understand why I wasn't happy. I was very
10: sad.
4: I felt if they'd separated, I guess, they would have... uh, They what? If they'd separated, I think they couldn't have been any worse off. Mm. But they stayed together for me. Is
5: that what they told you?
4: Yeah. Well, that's what my mother told me.
5: Your mom said that. Hmm. If it wasn't for you, I'd be gone.
4: Oh, yeah, my mother used to say, if it wasn't for me, she would be gone back to England.
5: So the eight-year-old says, I'd never do this. I'd never continually threaten to leave a relationship.
4: I guess.
5: Clever shit. So you promised yourself that you'd never keep this threat of abandonment going and... So you never do leave a relationship. Interesting little twist, there.
3: I'm desperately unhappy. No future, no present.
5: If you leave a relationship, you're injuring somebody else.
3: I am keen for divorce.
5: So do you think, it, how would you have gotten by if she had left? If she had stopped all the talk and left?
3: To ship back with me. Sewing machine. Gramophone with records. I wonder... I imagine Radio.
4: I would be like more like mat. some of my friends who
3: Linen in boxes.
4: are able to I mean, I, I, I Red mat. Board. Know, lots of people who are divorced
3: and shoes.
4: who don't exactly torture themselves about it seems to be something that they can handle and live through I think I'd be more like that
5: i got to quit for tonight. Mm -hmm. Have you been listening to your tapes in between sessions?
1: You asked for my commitment. You expected me to be committed to you through all of this crap. And you're annoyed with me now because I can't do that?
3: I can't go on any longer like this.
1: It's over. It's over. Goodbye.
0: Songs My Mother Taught Me by Newfoundland-based producer Chris Brooks. We enjoyed Chris's story so much, we called him up to learn more. And learn we did. Though Chris calls the story a documentary novel, it turns out almost everything is true. The recordings from Chris's therapy sessions are real tapes. The girlfriend on the phone, though an actress, was scripted from actual calls and emails. In fact, the only thing that's not real is when that same girl breaks it off with him in the end. In reality, she's now Chris's wife. However, the story itself may never even have come to light had Chris's mother had any say about what became of her diaries. But as Chris explains, she didn't.
4: Well, she died sort of unexpectedly. I think if she had, you know, had an illness and thought she was going to die, she probably would have destroyed the material, I I, I suspect. Um, But uh, she died sort of, you know, almost by accident in in hospital for a minor operation, and uh, she went into a coma, and that was the end of that. And so I was given the task of going through a lot of her things. And in a locked um, desk, it was her desk, I found all these diaries, and... um, I was absolutely fascinated.
0: So, through this process, you found out that you had family in England. Did they know about you while you didn't know about them?
4: Yeah, except it wasn't really me that they knew about. I mean, as it turned out, I learned from them that although myself and my father thought that uh, my mother had no family left, um, in fact, she had been writing to them on a regular basis all over the years. And she had been telling them that they couldn't come to visit because they were working class. And she had married a very wealthy upper class person in this other country. So it would be too embarrassing for them to show up and knock at the door. And so when my father and I met them, actually, it was amazing. I mean, we, you know, we got we went to London. We got off the bus and went up to their door. And We thought, of course, we didn't even know they existed. We we, we didn't know what to expect. And they expected, yeah, they expected somebody in top hat and tails with a a chauffeur pulling up in a Rolls Royce, you know. (laughs) Not this uh, middle-class accountant and his scruffy-looking son. So, yeah, they they knew about us, but they thought we were somebody quite different.
0: So what was your dad's reaction to all the stuff that was unearthed after your mom's death?
4: I mean, I think he was kind of shocked and amazed. My mother was a very uh, interesting and rather difficult woman to get along with, you know. Um, I remember as a small child of, I don't know, three or four, uh, w- went on what I was told, what I vaguely, vaguely remember as a very tiny child, was being taken on a holiday back to England with mother. But that's what it was, right? Until after she died and down in the bottom right-hand drawer of her desk, I remember, I found this batch of blue airgram letters. You know those ones they used to have? Oh,
0: yes, they? I certainly do.
4: Yeah. And it was tied up with a blue ribbon. I mean, they were very carefully kept. Obviously, they meant a lot to her. She kept them, right? And I opened the first two or three or four. I just started to read them. And they were all letters from my father, written every couple of days from that period where I was supposedly on holiday with my mother in England, and it was very clear that actually they'd split up. She'd left him. She'd taken the child. She'd gone back to England. And these were letters from my father pleading whether to come back. I mean, really heartrending pleading letters. And uh, eventually she did. She came back. And so I remember going in to my father. I'd only read maybe the first you know, half dozen letters and tied them up again. I said, look, I, I'm feeling like I'm snooping. I, I think these are yours and I, you know, I don't want to be snooping in them. Perhaps you'd like to have a look at them. And he was sitting in the um, the living room chair, the recliner that I used to have and, and uh, so I left him and he sort of like had this stunned look on his face, you know, and uh, he had a bottle of uh, Captain Morgan rum, I remember. And I came back in the morning I went in, and the rum bottle was empty, and he'd slept in the chair all night. And I said, what'd you do with the letters? Where are the letters? And he pointed to the fireplace, and he burned them all.
0: So we know from the story that you had trouble being in one relationship exclusively because it was hard for you to end any relationship, and that's what you were working on with the therapist. But how did the therapist end up in the story?
4: He's one of these counselors that uh, he had, well, this is a few years ago. It was a cassette recorder he had, right? A really old, ancient, terrible old thing that was sitting on his desk. And he would always uh, record the session I had with him. And at the end of the session, he'd say, okay, take this cassette, and you listen to this uh, before you come back next week. And after a a week or two of this, I I said, Gail, like, that's a terrible tape recorder. I mean, you know, I'm a sound guy. I said, this is awful. Why don't I bring you a, a sensible one and a microphone? So I did, and I gave it to him. So that's what the other stuff got recorded on, the stuff that ultimately I used. And then I asked him if I could could use those things, and he kind of swallowed hard and said, well, he guessed so. So that was fortuitous. I mean, I didn't really see that whole, you know, relationship with the shrink coming into the documentary, but it kind of snuck in by the back door. It, It just happened that it was something, coincidentally, I was going through at
0: the time, which suddenly seemed to make a lot of sense. Producer Chris Brooks joined us from his home in Newfoundland. You can hear more work by Chris at BatteryRadio.com. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by W B E Z Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at reSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
2: You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.